I will go for the the more difficult route, and I think that that makes your life more interesting. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of Famous Failures, where I interview the world's most interesting people about their failures and what they learn from them. I'm your host, Ozan Varol. Today's guest is Matilda Ho. Matilda is the founder of Yumishiji, one of China's first online farmers markets to bring organic and local produce to families. She's also the founder and managing director of Bits and Bytes, which is China's first accelerator and venture capital fund that invests in purpose-driven startups to shape the future of food. Before becoming an entrepreneur, Matilda filled leadership roles at IDEO and BCG, which is the Boston Consulting Group in both Shanghai and Washington, D.C. She holds an MBA from the University of Chicago Booth School of Business. She currently serves as an advisor on the board of Xinho, which is China's first and largest organic condiment company. In the interview, Matilda and I cover a lot of ground. We talk about why Matilda, or what Matilda, I should say, learned from working as Taiwan's first female dove magician, why she enjoys jumping into danger and uncertainty, how she decided to work on organic food in China, a country that's had an epidemic of food safety issues, why finding an early investor for her company was both a blessing and a curse. The questions that she likes to ask in interviewing employees for her company, as well as the questions that she asks potential startups that she's thinking about investing in, how she goes about creating an environment in her companies for encouraging her employees to share their mistakes and failures, and why being a CEO is a lonely job and the strategies that she uses to cope with that challenge and much, much more. If you'd like to keep in touch with me, your host, you can sign up for my weekly newsletter, The Weekly Contrarian, which lands in your inbox every Thursday morning, and it shares with you an article that I wrote that week, as well as recommendations for books, articles I may have read, apps, tools, really anything that challenges conventional wisdom and hopefully helps you look at the world a little differently. And you can sign up for that in one of two ways. You can go to weeklycontrarian.com and just drop in your email address, or you can text my first name, Ozan, O-Z-A-N, to 345-345. If you sign up, you'll also get my free ebook, The Contrarian Handbook, Eight Principles for Innovating Your Thinking. I made a decision a very long time ago to not accept any sponsors for the podcast. I've turned down all sponsorship offers I received. I apply the same philosophy to the newsletter and the website as well, just because I don't want sponsors to even subtly influence the recommendations that I make and the way that I write articles. In lieu of that, though, I do ask you, if you have been enjoying the show, please recommend it to a friend that goes a really long way in in spreading the word. Please also join over 100 other people who have left a rating and review for the show on iTunes and Google Play. Thank you so much in advance. Thank you for being a member of the audience. And uh, without further ado... Please enjoy my conversation with Matilda Ho. Matilda, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. It was such an honor to to have you with us. I uh, first I heard about you through your TED talk, but then I spent you know the past week researching everything that you've been doing with your two companies, and I've just been so thoroughly impressed and inspired. 
I'm going to begin with what might strike the listeners as an, as an unlikely place, and that place is magic. So at 21, you became Taiwan's first female dove magician performing on a live stage. Can you tell us about that and how you became interested in magic? Yeah, um, definitely. So I still remember the first time that I uh, started to have the relationship with magic is from my grandmother's birthday gift when I was six. And then since then, I was very obsessed with magic because I think this is something that it's a combination of art and science. Sometimes you see a magician performing on the stage for five minutes, but that would took them five years continuously facing the mirror, practicing hours every day, and then get to that perfect five minutes show. So that obsession really made me realize that this is a very interesting and I, I dream to be a professional magician, to be honest. And the reason why I picked doves is because I heard that this is the most difficult category under magic because you're performing with a live animal. And it's not about cards or umbrella or bowls or other gimmicks that they don't move. Birds move and <laughs> you have to hide them in your tuxedo everywhere. And you need to kind of train them and make sure that they can interact with you. And when I heard that under the female bodies is where basically disadvantaged, that makes me even want to practice more on the doves. Not to mention, I actually have animal phobia when I when I started to practice. So I, I, I need to spend months to overcome my fear for doves. That created another layer of difficulty. But I still quite connected with the magic circle because I think hanging out with professional magicians still inspire me a lot about how they think about the way that the world operates uh, when most people don't. Unfortunately, I, I couldn't be a professional uh, magician, but I still really enjoy hanging out with them. So that's really interesting what you said. I mean, it, it sounds like you purposefully put yourself into this extremely difficult category. And and, and I take it there, there are two parts to this from what I can tell from your response. One is working with doves, as you said there, <laughs> They're animals and you have to train them. And two, you actually had a phobia of animals as well. So what prompted you to seek out what made you uncomfortable or put yourself into the most difficult category as a magician, as opposed to starting out, you know, setting the bar low and uh, starting out with just doing regular magic that doesn't involve animals? Since I was raised, I, I have this tendency that I don't want to be conventional. And I've always been a very rebellion child. If my mother told me to do A, I would, I would say I want to do B. Hmm. When they told me that I should just get a job in the bank and, you know, get married <laughs> and stay in Taiwan, I would tell them that, no, I would never want to go back to Taiwan. When I grew up, I, I want to spend some time in the U.S. I want to travel around the world. I want to do something bigger than that. And I think that really pushed me somehow that if there is a choice, I will go for the the more difficult route. And I think that that makes your life more interesting. Absolutely. I, I agree 100%. And li like you, I was also a, <laughs> a rebellious <laughs> child in many ways. Although, you know, I grew up in, I grew up in Turkey, which is a, a very conformist, community-oriented country. So it's, it's really hard to be 
a, a, rebe- a rebellious child in a conformist society, at least from my from my perspective, especially in the education system. I mean, we were assigned numbers as students and teachers would call us by our number as opposed to our name. It's just one example of like the level of conformity that exists in, in, in society. And so these days I spend my time, a lot of my time writing about nonconformity and thinking about nonconformity. So I wanted to ask you about that as well. So was being a, a rebellious child a common thing in Taiwan? Uh, and if not, where where do you think that drive was coming from? It probably driven by the environment surrounding me. So, so let me give you an example. I have an elder sister who is only older than me by 358 days. So I was born by accident, wow. if you will. And, and although we are so similar in age, but we're extremely different. Hmm. She will follow everything that my parents say. So she she became, you know, a, a very famous doctor in Taiwan. She got married to another fellow doctor. They're very happily married with three kids, one on the way. But when I saw that my mom and my sister basically follow whatever the society expect them to be, I don't think that that will really make me happy. So it really comes from the calling inside your heart that I don't think that if I follow whatever my sister will step in, that will make me happy. That will make me feel that this is this is good. So that's why I, I think that I continue to throw myself into danger, into uncertainty. And that really excites me. So even when I choose to become a magician, I think that is something that people feel very shocked because I still remember I was the only girl that joined the magic club. All the other are men who are geeks, who doesn't understand that why would somebody likes to wear skirt and dress very beautifully, wants to become a magician, practicing all these card tricks over and over again with them in a dark room. But that really makes me very happy and I love spending time to do activities that most people don't like to do. Maybe I think it's just because of the environment that I was raised that made me want to go to the other route. Are there any skills that you picked up as a magician that you continue to use in your entrepreneurial life today? I think one trait that I learned a lot is vulnerability. A lot of people view magicians as performers or entertainers, I really see them as artists. And artists are not afraid of showing their vulnerability. And that makes them humble. That makes them see so many new things that most people don't. And I think when now I become a leader over two companies, I think this is a trade that I continue to coach people or share people how important that you should be a vulnerable leader. That really gives you the importance of staying humble, staying foolish. I think this is very important. And second, I would say is being focused. It's almost a form of meditation. When you need to really show a successful routine, that may take you thousands of times. So to give you some example, if I if I show you a very simple card trick, normally you see that small trick and your laugh after that one minute uh, tr- routine but that really gives us six hours practice in front of the mirror over and over again. Sometimes before we go out for lunch, we will say, let me do another 300 times. 
And that's the dedication and focus that you need to train yourself to be committed. And I think when you are running a business, some people will give up very easily after multiple failures. But I think if you really want to achieve your mission, you need to be okay with just continue to try. If, if plan A doesn't work out, let's try plan B. If plan B doesn't work out, let's try a plan C. I think that focus and dedication and relentless spirit really translate me into day-to-day management and decision-making. And there's so many points here about vulnerability, focus, jumping into danger and uncertainty that I want to return to later after we had an opportunity to talk a little bit more about what you do. So why don't we do that now? And then we can circle back to some of these points because I'm really interested in in exploring them. So how did you decide, I mean, reading about you, as I mentioned, and all the impressive projects you're working on, it struck me that you took on one of the most ambitious projects that you could possibly have taken on. Uh, You decided to work on food in China, a country of, what, 1.3 billion people that has had major food safety problems. And as I was reading about what you're doing, you know, in terms of ambition, I thought, you know, Matilda is giving Elon Musk a run for his money <laughs> in, in terms of the, just the, the, the scope and the ambition of, of what you're trying to do. So how did you get it? I guess this is a two-part question, but feel free to combine the two parts. How did you get into working on organic food on the one hand, and why did you choose to work specifically in China? A lot of people will ask me, whether I came from a chef family or some family who are foodies, but it's completely the opposite. I actually grew up in a tiger mom family that I was not allowed to step in the kitchen. I should be only focusing on having becoming the best students of the class. I didn't really learn how to cook or the importance of the relationship with food is until I moved to uh, Chicago when I went to business school back in 2008. And that was the time that I started to learn about cooking from my roommate. And I will walk to the supermarket and starting to learn, oh, this is called celery. This is called broccoli. Um, so, so sometimes um, I even remember those food names in, uh, better in English than in Chinese because of this. The first class uh, when I went to the business school, that was the day of the bankruptcy of Lehman Brothers. So I had a perfect dream that I'm going to went to one of the top consulting firms in the U.S. I'm going to stay there. I'm going to be a great executive. Um, That was my goal uh, for enrolling to business school. But the first day of our class, it's gone. (laughs) It's the beginning of the economic, economic crisis back in 2008, and they don't accept any international students. We won't have working visa there, so I need to have a plan B. So I, was, I think, okay, should I still trying to find another geography that I can do something big? Okay, China seems to be good because I speak the language there. I'd never been to China back then, but it sounds very exciting. And then so I, I, fortunately, I became the only summer consultant they accepted that year. Um, So that was my first time spending some time in Shanghai. And I didn't really like it in the first place, but I really loved consulting because you, you, you got put into very exciting projects, working with super smart 
C-level executives for Fortune 100 company. Um, so that kind of made me move to Shanghai after business school. Um, and because my first job out of university was for food and beverage company, so they kind of put me all the project related to, you know, big companies like Nestle, MB, InBev, Millicores, Unilever, and so on. And so I got to work on several projects that basically allowed me to see so many food system challenges in China. But yet, as a consultant, the deliverable are basically PowerPoints and Word documents and Excel sheets. That doesn't mean that you're basically providing a tangible solutions or you won't be able to see the real implementation of those changes. And so that's why after five years being a consultant, I decided to tell myself that if nobody is tackling those problems that I'm seeing, I should be the one that trying to tackle that. And just for the members of the audience who are not familiar with the food system challenges that you referred to in your in your answer, can you briefly speak about the the problems that that you were seeing and that you decided to tackle? I would say that there are a set of challenges um, if you look at the food systems in China. And, and, and I also want to just point out that a lot of food system challenges we're trying to resolve are universal. The first thing I want to point out is the food access. Like you said, with 20% of the world population for China, we have less than 7% of arable lands. So how we're going to feed the world for the next 20 years without hurting the planet will be a, a continuously growing issue. And food safety um, is another set of big challenge that I don't think that it's only applied for China, but the global issue, how we are going to tackle a cleaner and better food source for the population will also be another problem that we want to tackle. One of the projects that I was leading back then in a consulting firm is to evaluate what will be the next likely outcome of big food safety disease for China. And I think that's a very scary project because we literally took out all the food incidents that came out in China over the past 20 years. And the list of the food safety scandals that you see, it's really troublesome. If you see that how many players are really devoting their time and resources to resolve those challenges, it's really underserved. And that's another thing that we're really trying to tackle. And the other thing is the health and nutrition. Starting in 2016, the number of overweight population outgrow the number of underweight population. That means that a lot of dietary diseases are really growing along with the economics and urbanization. So we're starting to see that people are starting to need to learn what would be a more balanced diet than trying to eat more meat and more food that will probably have negative consequences over time. And lastly, I would say is the mindfulness. Many people still have very little awareness of how their food choices would impact their health and the environment. And I think there is a, a lot of consumer education uh, that needs to happen to start to educate people to have more informed food choices. So all this thesis are the ones that I uh, believe that we need to have more entrepreneurs 
and companies that devote these resources and focus to work on a, a more sustainable food ecosystem. Yeah, that makes sense. So the desire to solve those problems, at least in part, led you to start Yimishiji and then Bits and Bytes. How did you find investors to back your platform? I think I was very lucky in the sense that when I was a consultant, I worked with a client uh, for several projects. And, you know, that connected me to my my first investor almost by chance. And I would say that, you know, luckily that that probably came a bit too easily. So when I decided that I want to be entrepreneur and I want to start by launching Imishiji, uh, an online e-commerce platform, the investor basically gave me the first set of capitals to start a business. And he even gave me an office space that can accommodate 100 people and just trust my mission and really allow me to have that freedom to to build a first venture out. That's amazing because <laughs> most people find it really hard to find an investor like that, especially one that's willing to give you office space to hold a uh, 100 people. I mean, did that affect the, the future trajectory of the company or the way that that you approached your management in, in any way? Yeah, I would say that that probably gave me a lot of room for mistakes. But that also, I would say that uh, my mindset changed. Um, a lot of people would joke about that as an investor, don't ever invest in consultants <laughs> because <laughs> a lot of mindset that consultants are trained are the opposite of entrepreneurship. We are paid to advise those CEO how to optimize your operation, how to do the cost cutting, how to choose a safer route to make your stakeholders happy. But being an entrepreneur is almost the opposite. You have to be bold enough to make the decisions that most people don't. You have to be more resourceful. You have to be very well connected. You have to try something that most people don't. You have to go for a very courageous decision. You have to embrace failures. Even your numbers on the sheet looks really terrible. So it's very value-driven, I would say, being an entrepreneur rather than you know being a consultant. It's always very profit-driven. Um, so I would say that because I, I, was, I was consultant by training, I get my first set of capital almost that came a bit too easily. I don't need to pay upfront a, a space. And so that made me become very arrogant. And I think that, wow, okay, actually running a business could be very easy. I can hire a lot of people to accommodate that 100 people space. I can just hire an agency to build a e-commerce platform for me. And I probably don't need to think about running a business and be responsible for my investor because he seems to trust me a lot. So I, I think that is not necessarily a good thing if I think back that time. If I have more constraint in the beginning, maybe I will not make a lot of decisions that I made back five years ago. Can you give us an example of one of those decisions or one of the mistakes you made that did not turn out well? Short, I didn't think that I'm ready to be a good CEO, but you know, it's, it's fine. I, I don't <laughs> think leadership was born, leadership was trained, developed. Um, but back then, I think the three most fundamental skill set a good CEO should always take care of is the product and the people and the profit. And I think I suck at 
all these three. I hired the wrong people. I hired the wrong CTO. I hired the wrong COO. And I didn't really know how to find the right founding team or the, the right management team. I, I don't think I was really understanding what would be the right traits when you need to look for those people surrounding you. And that really give you the backfire, right? Because you thought that you set up the right culture and value, but that's just your personal value. That doesn't necessarily translate to the organization. The first seven to 10 people that you hire to your organization will jointly define the culture and value of your organization. And by hiring the wrong C-level executive, that's going to be bad because six months later, one year later, when you realize they are the wrong people and you have to take them out from your team and you have to rebuild your, your culture and values, that's a basically waste of time. And so I would say that that's definitely one big failure that I made. If you could go back in time when you were making these first seven to 10 hiring decisions, hiring the C-level executives, what advice would you give to your former self? What would you do differently? Unfortunately, <laughs> I always tell people that a lot of people ask me, especially the startups that I invested these days, they like to ask me, how, how do you hire people? How do you do interviews? How do you know this is the right C-level people that I should hire? And I always told them that the best way to learn how to hire the right people is by hiring a lot of wrong people. Ah, I love that. Um, And and this is the advice that I always tell people that you have to interview every single employee. Even now, Imi Shiji, we have around 250 people. I still I still interview the frontline people. I still spend a lot of time interviewing them. Right now, even just 15 minutes, I need to make a pass. I need to make sure that now after interviewing hundreds of people, maybe thousands of people in a couple of years, then that really trained myself up that I I starting to have a better judgment and better intuition that whether this is going to be a good employee of our company. I think it's inevitable that you have to hire the wrong co-founder to give you that great lesson learned that you know that next time I will have a greater chance not to find the wrong person. I love that answer so much. <laughs> uh, so you have to you have to fail <laughs> initially. You have to make those mistakes to be able to learn how to hire hire the right people. Now you know you mentioned you still interview people for hiring them at Yimishiji. You also, of course, interview startups for bits and bytes, which we'll get to a little bit later. Do you have any like favorite interview questions? that you found work particularly well in teasing out some of these skills that you're looking for and making sure that you are hiring the right people? Yeah, I really love to ask questions related to failures and shortcomings because I think everyone before going to that interview room, they know that they have to sell at their best. So they prepare a lot of success stories. They are ready to talk about tons of achievement that they already write down in the resume. But I always like to ask them, can you tell me a experience or a story that frustrates you the most? The other question I really like to ask in the interview is also their shortcomings. But I I don't ask them what's your biggest weakness because that doesn't really work well. I like to ask them, 
if I go to your ex-colleague and ask them to use three traits or adjectives to describe who you are at work, uh, what are those three traits would be? And one of them has to be negative. And I think those questions really show them who they really are. It's very interesting that some of them will refuse to answer those questions. They will say that, no, I, I never really first, I don't feel frustrated at all at work or I don't really make any mistakes at work. You know, everything is perfect. Then I probably won't <laughs> hire that person because if they cannot see the flaws in themselves or if they think that their colleagues won't be able to see their flaw, they probably won't be able to learn and grow um, in our organization over time. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it, it shows either one that they're not taking enough risks, right? They're doing simply what they did yesterday. And that's why they're making that, that they're not making any mistakes because they're just simply sticking to the status quo or worse, they do have flaws, but they're hiding them. And of course, hiding failures gets in the way of, of learning and growth. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, and being authentic is also very important. That's why um, I, I know that our middle managers or directors already prove their hard skills. So I know that the role that I should fit in is trying to test it out that whether they have the right values and desired behaviors that can really grow with us, with the company. So those are the good questions that I found uh, being very useful. And in terms of interviewing startups, it's one of the things you're trying to do as a as an investor is to see into the future, <laughs> to see how this initial seed of an idea is going to play out. And there is a lot of uncertainty involved in trying to predict what the possible outcomes are going to be. How do you approach those decisions? Because and this harkens back to something you mentioned earlier about jumping into uncertainty when we talked about your your prior life as a magician. And so how do you deal with uncertainty and how do you make decisions in the face of uncertainty, primarily as an investor, but really as an entrepreneur as well and, and working on Yumishiji? Apart from, you know, all the customer due diligence, commercial, legal, tech due diligence that we have to uh, do to evaluate the company on the hard scale side, there's also a lot of the evaluation that we did to understand whether this founder has the right potential or soft skills to succeed. If I could just throw out some of the thoughts um, or traits that we're looking for from their past life experience, we like to look for entrepreneurs that fail and fail fast. If the entrepreneur's resume looks too perfect, that also gives us a warning sign. That means that if going down the road, there's going to be a lot of noises and they probably won't be determined to succeed. They probably will not be able to break through those noises. That's dangerous. So we like to hear and see and track their past failure experiences. There's this entrepreneur that we invested. This is his third attempt to solve the same problem but the third products that he wanted to try. And we love that because that means that, you know, he realized that maybe it's just the timing was not right. The product was not right. The value proposition was not right. But he continued to try something else. And every time he grow and learn, 
And he really trying to focus on the signal over the noises. And we like that about him. The other trait I would say is also being optimistic and passionate. I think after seeing, you know, hundreds, we, we, we review about 500 applications. We, we meet around 500 entrepreneurs every year. And I think that's a, a, a good number enough for us to starting to see a diversity of entrepreneurs when they approach the problems. And some founders, you can see that they're just optimistic. They know that there are no silver bullets. They just have to keep trying and trying. And they, they know that the need to achieve what they envision is stronger than the pain that they experience. And they're struggle, but they're fine. They're, they're happy to be struggle and they like to talk about struggles. That's something that we, we, we love about investing and working with those founders over time. Rather than some founders that when you talk to them, they only like to talk about their milestone. They only like to talk about their success. And that's dangerous because we don't want to only spend time to hear about they made amazing progress. We like to hear them talking about this is the obstacles that we're facing. This is a struggle that we haven't achieved. These are the three things that we promised that we need to hit, but we only hit one. And the other two, we need your help on. We like to spend our time to talk with those founders who like to talk about obstacles rather than success. That's such a great approach. And really, I think there are, there are two components to what you, what you just mentioned. One is being aware of what you don't know. So knowing what you don't know, you mentioned, you know, these are the obstacles, these are the problems that we're facing that we haven't solved yet. There's such a stigma attached in society, and I see this with my own students, to saying, I don't know. But to me, if you know what you don't know, and if you're willing to go get help, that's actually a sign of strength because you're willing to admit ignorance and you're, well, not, not ignorance in the sense of like, I don't care about the answer to this question, but ignorance in the sense that I've, I've done my research, here are the potential obstacles that I'm facing, I'm willing to overcome them with your help is, is I think, as you said, it, it, that's the right attitude for an entrepreneur to have. And the other component that jumped out at me is the point, not just about failing fast, but learning fast as well. So you're not, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but you're not just looking for entrepreneurs who have failed in the past, but who have actually derived valuable lessons from those failures, even if they failed three times, as in the case of this one investor you mentioned, but taking those lessons from each failure and applied it to the next venture. That's completely true, that whether you have the ability to always have a plan B and plan C, so when the, the current plan doesn't work out, would you have a very quick iteration on the alternative solutions? Because I think even just running a day-to-day -day operation business, you're making decisions every single day. And sometimes you make the wrong decision today, and sometimes you make the right decision tomorrow. Every single decision, either right or wrong, will always keep you going and grow stronger. And I think being a good leader is constantly to learn from your decision making. And sometimes decisions are made out of intuition. There's no right or wrong. There's no way that you will be able to trap back and say, this is the right decision or this is the wrong decision. And you just have to keep going and learning. And I think that's a very important trait, being an entrepreneur as well. 
you have to just keep going and focus on the role, uh, not the wall. I think that's very important as well. Keep going. And one of the other traits you mentioned, which came up earlier, but I think I'm bringing it up again because I think it just relates to what you just said. The point about vulnerability that came up and I, I promise we will return to it. How do you show your vulnerability as, as a leader? I mean, you're now running two companies with hundreds of employees. How do you show your vulnerability to them? I'll give you an example. Every quarterly, we need to do a workshop. And this is what I told them that this is what I do with my investors. Well, every quarter I go and see him and we sit down for one hour and I only write down six bullet points. The three things I've done well and then the three things I did wrong. And I don't only want to talk about, hey, I, I'm doing great. This is this is perfect. I want to also tell them that these are the three mistakes I did. And I know I'm going to try to fix it or trying to do better at this. And I want everyone to do the same thing as well. So we do this workshop for, for half day and everyone needs to write down what are the three most important things that you achieved and what are the three biggest mistakes or failure that you did. And when we do a review checking, even including one-on-one, this is always the feedback that we're trying to use as a very useful format that, okay, these are the three things that I think you did well, and these are the three area of growth or improvement that we need to fix it. And I think this is a good way to also show and admit our flaws in front of your employees, even your subordinates. And that exercise doesn't only happen for your team members, but I also told them, listen, these are the three things I didn't do well. Either I didn't spend enough time with the company, I didn't pay attention enough with these people, so they left. I think i partially responsible for that as well. So, you know, I think if you create an environment and ambience that everyone can openly talk about something that they do wrong, that can also create a better culture for everyone to talk about their mistakes. And I think that is a good and tangible way to show your vulnerability. And that also make your team to feel that they're closer to you and they're more connected with you. I mean, what you just described, which um, is similar to what Harvard Business School professor Amy Edmondson calls psychological safety, is so important. And when when I first heard that term, psychological safety, I was like, oh, this is like new age fluff. But I've come to actually really embrace it because it's so hard, as you mentioned, normally for people to raise their hands and admit that they've failed. But it, it sounds like you've created this this environment through these regular reviews of saying three things that you've done right and three mistakes you've made and also leading by example, too. I mean, it's one thing for you to ask your employees to do this, but then it's something else for you to actually step up and say, hey, you know what? I failed in, in these in these three ways that really sets the example for everyone in the company to follow. One thing I would also like to add is that I also learned that Ego is the the biggest enemy of vulnerability. I think just reflecting back a lot of wrong 
decision that I have made is contributing by my ego. And I think everyone, when we were young, when we we're in our 20s and 30s, we think the, the world is so small and we can achieve so many things in such short period of time. And we, we always let our ego to overlook a lot of things that we didn't see. And I think this is something that I constantly need to remind myself, especially over a short success moment, I, I need to tell myself, okay, you need to let go of your ego. You have to let go. I think that is human nature and we need to constantly fight for that. Absolutely. Because when, when success happens, usually we attribute that to our skills and genius. And we say, we did everything right. We succeeded, but we neglect that we actually may have gotten lucky <laughs> and that the same processes that led to the success might actually lead to failure if things had been just a little bit different. And so because, as you said, success has a, has a tendency to boost those the, the ego and lead to all sorts of adverse consequences, it's really important to, to keep the ego in check. Do you have any particular strategies that you use yourself to make sure that when success does happen, that you do keep the ego in check and make sure you don't get complacent? One thing that I'm, I'm starting to do is to embrace loneliness. I think it's, it's sad to hear, but I started to learn that if you were to become an entrepreneur or you become a CEO or when you started to climb up your ladder in a big organization, you have to start learning how to be with yourself and spend quality time with yourself. Because I do believe that entrepreneurship is a very lonely job. You always need to look very motivated, very, you have to encourage people. When you have a very worrying workforce, you have to tell them everything is fine. And they probably spend most of the time coming to you because they have some mistakes that they want you to help them fix. And so when you are really going back home by yourself, you're like, oh, but how can I talk to anyone? You know, you have no one to talk to. They always can find you to complain and talk about something is wrong, but you are become a garbage man. But then how are you going to take all this stress and then go somewhere else? And the only way that you can do is to be by yourself and build that mindfulness. And so I starting to, you know, I work out a lot. I think that's a great moment of building your mindfulness and almost like a form of meditation. I started to do meditation as well every day before I go to bed. I starting to track my sleeping cycle, my sleeping quality. I starting to read a lot and talk to the book, talk to the, the author. I do backpacking every now and then because I, I think talking to yourself, no matter when you're successful or when you're extremely stressed out, the only thing that you can get rid of your ego or get out of all this negative thoughts in your mind is only by yourself by the end of the day. So unfortunately, you, you have to be very happy being by yourself. Well, Matilda, this has been so much fun. We're coming to the end of our time here, but I want to give you the opportunity to share any parting words with the audience on failure, really on any subject, anything that we should have covered but did not. I want to give you an opportunity to to share that with the audience before we uh, before we close up here. I would just add one point that when you're when you mentioned earlier about 
why we would choose one of the most complex issues that we wanted to tackle, the food and agriculture sustainability problems, and we're focused on China, which is a big monster to tackle. I'd like to share one point that I think a lot of those successful stories that appear to have taken off overnight actually takes years of commitment to materialize. And food and agriculture itself, I always strongly believe that good food business take time. If you want to have a organically grown vegetable without any pesticides and chemical fertilizer, it takes 30 days to harvest. If you want a chicken without antibiotics, you need to raise them and let them happily grow over six months rather than 45 days. So good food business take time to build. And a lot of impatience in the food system nowadays really have a lot of negative consequences. And so I think for people who aspire to contribute to a more sustainable food and agriculture ecosystem, need to have that patience in their mind. And I think that is a very important trait in addition to a lot of conversation that we have today. And I think having that patience and long-term view is very critical to what we're looking for. And I think what you just said, it applies equally outside of the food business as well. I think the impatience is is a growing epidemic and people neglect, they see the finished product and they don't see, as you said, the years of commitment that goes into it. And that actually harkens back to something you said at the beginning of our conversation too. You know, they see the magician's final act, but they don't see the the six hours that the magician you know, put in to actually to perfect that act. Um, there's a saying, I think this is by Mark Andreessen. Uh, I might be wrong about this, but he says, there are no silver bullets. We're going to have to use a lot of lead ones instead. So that, that applies, I think, not just to the food industry, but really to anything that, that you're working on. Anytime you're trying to make change happen, anytime you're trying to do anything meaningful, it's going to take years of effort, years of failure. There are no overnight successes. Yeah, exactly. I, I cannot agree more. There is no overnight success and we just need to continue to fight. I think that's the perfect note to wrap up this conversation on. Matilda, thank you so much for joining us. If, if people are interested in finding out more about you and your companies and what you're doing, where can they look for more information? For Bits and Bytes, they can basically assess all the basic information on Bits and Bytes website. If if anyone who is interested in collaborate on the China opportunity in food and agriculture tech, feel free to send us a note. Or we even have an online application for all the entrepreneurs to reach out to us. Excellent. We will include all of that in the show notes as well, just so people can easily click through and apply. Matilda, thank you again so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Hi, everyone. Thanks for listening. Two things before you take off. First, if you don't want to miss out on future episodes of Famous Failures, please subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you're listening on and be sure to leave a review on iTunes or Google Play. Second, if you'd like to join thousands of others who receive a short email from me each Thursday with a list of articles, books, tools, quotes, and other gems that help you discover how extraordinary thinking produces extraordinary results, you can text my first name, which is Ozan, that's spelled O-Z-A-N, 
to 345-345. So once again, that's my first name, Ozan, O-Z-A-N, to 345-345. Or if you're in front of your computer, you can head over to ozanvarol.com and drop your email address. If you act now, you'll also get a free ebook called The Contrarian Handbook, Eight Principles to Innovate Your Thinking. As always, thank you for listening and see you next time.